invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Again, we'll be reading um, somewhat of a lengthy portion of Scripture um, and not in accordance with the chapter divisions. I really don't care for the chapter divisions in this section, and I think uh, the way we're breaking up is a little more in line with um, being able to preach it in, in the segments. And so we'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 11, where a question is asked, and it will be answered in chapter 3. And so we're going to be reading through chapter 3, verse um, 33. And so, again, a lengthy portion, but we want to read all of this together. And I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. Lamentations, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. My eyes fail with tears, my heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine as they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom? How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and consider. To whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger there was no refuge or survivor. Those whom I have borne have brought up. My enemies have destroyed. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. 
He has blocked my ways with hewn stone and has made my paths crooked. He has, made, he has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercy, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does grieve the children of men. We come into... I believe one of the most important transitional passages in a single book of the Bible, in Lamentations this morning. Um, It is powerful for us to see the enormous contrast and what makes the difference in that contrast. What makes us go from lamentation to declaration of the faithfulness of our hope in the Lord. And that's, as we call this book Lamentations, and perhaps rightly so, but that is not the conclusion of the book. That is the causation. It is not the conclusion. It is simply that which initiates the working of God among his people, uh, Israel. But it is not where it ends. And that is, I think, is critical for us to understand in the fall of Jerusalem as we looked over the tragedy of it, as we considered the the desperation that we see in the city. And we begin to recognize, yes, this is the work of the Lord against those who have rejected him. But this is not the work that God wants to do. It is the work that he purposes to do, and there's a distinction that you need to have in your mind. That there's that that God wants to do, and there's that which God must do. And all of us recognize that we have those choices all the time, that we are confronted with. There are things that I would like to do, but I cannot do, because the conditions and the circumstances will not permit me to do it. And so we are going to find that that is the case here. 
among Israel, that yes, God, like so many times that we are confronted with things, um, has some things he would like to be able to do. And we rejoice and marvel and focus and meditate on those things when God says that I don't want any of you to have to suffer this. I don't want any of you to, to be separated from me. Here's what I want for you. And boy, when he starts listing off what he wants to do for people, those kinds of passages, I mean, they're up on our top 10 list, aren't they? You go through Ephesians 1 and 2, and you're like, look at what God wants to do for us. And then we come to passages like the first half of Lamentation. We see what God has to do to us. And we go, is this the same God? <laughs> and yes, it is. The distinction here is not that God has changed. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is the difference of how you respond to God frees him or binds him to how he blesses or judges. And we're going to examine that in a lengthy passage, and I'm not going to be able to give nearly as much time as I probably should. And, and don't be surprised if this, especially since the clock is stuck, and so I might be preaching. <laughs> I might get through it all this week, actually, because um, our battery died on the clock, so I'll, I'll just keep preaching until I'm done, or I'll have to finish this next week, one or the other. But there is so much important information here in this portion of Lamentations um, that I fear that we might do it an injustice to just speak of it for 30, 40 minutes and not see the breadth and depth of what we have before us. And so let's ask the Lord's help as we get into this this morning and uh, examine it more carefully. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for all of it. And we rejoice in it, knowing that it is for our benefit. And we come to a passage like this and we are often confounded sometimes by the extent of your judgment and sometimes we ignore it and just focus on the aspects of your grace and Lord we want balance and we pray for your spirit's help in that that we might be willing to weep even as we hope in you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. We painted, tried to paint a picture for you of what happens when the Lord exercises his righteousness, his holiness, um, and it is not unprecedented. We have seen it throughout scripture. We have seen it all the way back to the really to the Garden of Eden when they were cast out of that garden, all the good things that God intended for them, wanted to provide for them, and they spurned it and forced him to remove them and to bring death upon them uh, and separation from himself, guilt, all that is brought with sin. We find him expressing it in the flood narrative, in the flood event, we find it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We find it against the Assyrians. We've seen it time and again where God has, has exercised that. Now he has done almost the unthinkable. Really, it was the unthinkable for most of Israel, and that's why they just 
didn't think it applied to them, the call of the prophets to repent. It's unthinkable that God would do this to his own. And yet now, Lamentations is written as most of the survivors are being carried away into captivity and looking over their shoulder of seeing this beautiful place where God's Shekinah glory once resided being destroyed systematically by the Babylonians with a cloud of death having been over the city not just on that day but for months prior. And now, having fully realized that God who chooses to bless, God who says, follow me into the promised land where there will be flowing milk and honey, where there will be ample and there will be blessing upon blessing for generations and really for eternity he has offered this, that that same one, when violated by the iniquity of those very people, turns his anger on them, that the hand that blessed them is the hand that has wounded them deeply. And we try to divorce that in our modern thinking, um, and it is evident in our country today that we dismiss as the hand that spanks that can be the hand that cuddles. We have tried to dismiss that, that those two can't possibly be in the same context, and yet they must be in the same context. And we see the results of those that think that no one can lay a hand on them, no matter what evil they do, and we see how far their evil goes, and we're starting to see that in this day, in this age. And it's not unique our age. It has been repeated a few times. And so we come to God laying it on, and he literally uses that terminology that God's just going to lay it on you. When God lays it on, how do we respond? In the end times, in the days of tribulation, when God's wrath is being poured out, we find a spirit of arrogant rigidity that the more God hammers them, the more they stiffen against it and blaspheme his name more. But Israel wasn't at that point yet. The survivors, at least, of Jerusalem. They hadn't gotten to that point of blackness in their hearts and their society and their social understanding of the exercise of God's anger. And so we find that instead of rigidity, instead of blaspheming God and blaming him, pointing the finger at him as we so often talk about, we find them finally broken. Broken hearted and recognizing their own sin. And this is the condition of the words that we pick up in chapter 2 of Lamentations, verse 11. Their eyes are full of tears. Their heart is troubled. 
They are literally sick to their stomach. Bile is poured out on the ground. They're vomiting over not just the destruction of Jerusalem and over the scenes that they witnessed in the months and months of siege and the conditions as they deteriorated in the city. Not only just that, um, certainly that is there, and he describes it because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, the children, the infants, fainting in the streets, um, the lack of food, that there they are staggering throughout the streets of the city as their life ebbs away from them, even while their mothers try to comfort them. The question comes forward that certainly these images bring weeping, but there's something more substantial going on here that has finally broken this heart, this uh, mind, this man, this city. And so he asks the question in verse 13 that, that begins to portray that there's something more significant that he's talking about than just the physical suffering that he has seen. The consequences of war that was there as well as in other places. There was nothing unique that happened here that has not been seen on the planet elsewhere. But there is something different. And he's going to draw this out in verse 14 and following. Here we are on this side now of God's judgment And when we look back with perfect vision now of saying, what were we thinking? We can easily place the fault and the problem in just a few places. And among them is that we wanted to hear what we wanted to hear. Fundamentally, that's what it came down to. The fact is, we know because God declared it, we have the record of these who faithfully declared the truth of God, saying, repent, 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 repent. Who pointed out sins of individuals and leadership, of social sins, of religious sins. They just covered the whole gamut of sins and showed the extent and the breadth and the, and the, and the horror of the sin and, and the affront that it was before God. They had those true prophets of God, but instead they listened to the ones they wanted, the false prophets. And that has always been available. Do you think that Noah was the only one talking for the hundred years that he was building? You listen to who you want to listen to. How can we console you when you choose to close your ears to the truth and listen to the lying prophets. And so your prophets have seen for you. Notice that. They aren't for God. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. They have told you what you wanted to hear. It got them rich, it got them popular. And it lulls you to spiritual sleep. How can I console you? You knew it was coming. God sent his prophets and you readily identified them to the point that you imprisoned them. You slaughtered them. You 
drove them out. You knew who they were. You didn't want to hear what they had to say. And so, there's always in that void a cluster of people that recognize an opportunity and say, these people want to hear this. And if I tell them what I want to, them to, what they want to hear, they'll keep coming back for more. And it works. And the trap is baited. You don't bait a trap with something that the animal doesn't naturally enjoy. You bait it with its favorite food. And whatever animals it is that I've had to butcher out, um, in the weeks prior to it, I always make sure, because I have to deal with this animal, to bring it its favorite food, which is usually corn <laughs> for most of the grazers. And, how, oh, they get, so, they get so excited to see me coming because I bring them nothing but corn. It's like candy. And they just keep eating it. And I keep bringing it, and they get closer to me and closer to me and closer to me and closer to me over the several weeks, and pretty soon they're eating it right out of my hand. I've baited a trap. That's their destruction. I've intended to do that. Because one day I'm going to show up there with the corn in one hand and a knife or a gun in the other hand to destroy them. And this is what the false prophets did. They simply told people what they wanted to hear. And they're baiting a trap that led to their destruction in the fall of Jerusalem. And so the prophet of God says, how can I console you? You were given the choice. And you just wanted to hear what you wanted to hear. And now you're on this side of the consequences of that. And I ask you again to choose. What do you want to hear now? The truth or more bait? Which one do you want? And here's the condition, and he again rehearses the condition that here the people of God that God sent prophets to, he, he, he sent a prophet now and then to others. But to Israel, he sent early and often. I rose up early and sent a whole bunch of them to you, and you ignored them. You chose to hear what you wanted to hear. It is the condition of the Western church today. We will line up to hear what we want to hear, and we will shy away and disparage anyone that tells us something that we don't like from God's word. That goes counter to our lifestyle, to our belief systems that are wrapped around us being nothing but comforted and blessed. And so, what is the condition? The enemies recognize it even and rejoice in it even before you realize it. That as it's going on, your enemies see the siege happening and they're rejoicing. They're hissing over it. They are saying, we've been waiting for this. We can't wait to see this happen. We have finally seen it happen. We've wanted this all along. Yes, they're baiting a trap against you, even while they're speaking for you. 
The enemies recognize it. And we're going to see later on when we get back to Jeremiah here in just a few weeks, we're going to see that the Babylonians are like, why didn't you listen to your God? Why, why would you abandon him? Look what he's done to you. You did this to yourself. And so the question that came out in, in verse 13, how can I console you? How can I comfort you? How can you be healed? Well, first problem is you heard the truth, you rejected it, and you just mounted up for yourself a bunch of preachers who told you what you wanted to hear. And sometimes they weren't even preachers, they were just philosophers. And sometimes they weren't even that, they were just politicians that you knew were lying. We make jokes out of it, but we listen. I was dumbstruck yesterday when I got home and quickly checked, well, last, after all the chores were done, checked my Facebook. And here's this man that, working on his PhD in theology, THD is what it is, it's THD in theology, um, developing websites for all this, these different things that, and here he is and with a post that says, Vote for Trump, he's our only hope. And I'm like, well, you have a different hope than I have. And hope, by the way, is a big part of this message, this passage. Like, really? He's your capital O-N-L-Y, capital H-O-P-E. He is our only hope. I hate to tell you this, but he's not. He's not even my tertiary hope. He's way down the list. He's not my top ten. Nowhere in there. I have a whole lot of other places I'll look for deliverance before I look to any politician. But here we are believing the lie of the world. We hear what we want to hear. And that brought destruction for Jerusalem. And it empowered the enemy and the enemy finally got what they wanted. They wanted to see Jerusalem fail. And if you don't think the world is out there just itching to watch you fail, to watch the church fail, um, you don't understand the world. They relish in it. They will clap their hands. And they will make snide remarks. And they will even claim success. We have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. They are waiting for your failure. They are waiting for butchering day, knowing you've been baited by liars that you chose to listen to. This is the condition of the church. It was the condition of Israel and then we come smack with the front, facing the truth again in verse 17. The Lord has purpose to do this. That is, he has done what he said he would do. It is not that God purposed to do this all the way back and that this is not about God that they couldn't have repented because God had determined 
It is not that God determined to do this, but this is what God warned you would happen if you didn't repent. And please don't put ideas into the text that aren't there. When he says this is what the Lord has purposed, it isn't this is what he eternally decreed he was going to do on this day. Rather, this is what he told you would happen if you did not repent. Conditional clause. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. Not some word before creation, but the word he spoke to you in the covenant he gave you, that you agreed to. If you keep it, then he will bless you. If you disobey, if you break it, then you'll be cursed. That's the word that he purposed, that he said would happen. He sent prophets after prophets to remind you of that. He sent warning shots, if you will, over your bow by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians two other times. You have had ample opportunity to reflect upon that God is true to his word. And now he has exercised it to its fullest extent. And Jerusalem is lost. And yes, it means horrific suffering. We do not put that at God's feet. We put that as one of the necessary things that he hated to do, but had to do. Why? Because Israel didn't cry when they should have. They boasted. Now they're ready to cry. Now they're broken. And we're going to see that described. And so the call is to cry out, cry out, cry out. And the prophet is speaking even to the walls. Don't let any facet of Jerusalem, don't let any survivor, don't let any refugee coming out of this area, don't fail to cry. You should be broken. You didn't cry when you should have. And now by God's grace, To you, you have survived this onslaught. And don't take that as an aspect of pride that somehow you can strut out of town and saying, you, I got through that. It ain't over yet. And when we get back to Jeremiah, you're going to find out that there's a whole bunch of these people that are going to get slaughtered yet because they didn't do what they were told. They were told, you squeaked by. Somehow you survived that. Cry, be broken, weep before the Lord, recognize what has happened and the extent of it and that this is God's judgment on your sin. Cry out in the night, let, the, let it be done all night long, don't let it stop, let tears run down like a river, don't relieve yourself, don't look for rest, don't, don't try to get comfort from this. I can't console you, but neither should you even seek to be consoled. Not of this earth, not of this world. Let us somehow, ooh, the worst is over, we survived, um, so we must be okay, because I'm still here. No, you're not okay yet. There's no consolation I can give you if you do not follow my directive. Arise, cry out. Lift your hands, 
Remember what happened to your children. Remember what happened to the priests and the prophet. Remember what happened there uh, uh, of the young men and the young women that are lying dead in the streets. Think back on that and cause it to break your heart. Not that you might rise up against God, but that you might recognize that this was because of your iniquity. It's because of your sin. And we just don't weep over sin anymore. Maybe the best we get is tisk tisk. You shouldn't do that. We don't lament it. We don't weep over it on our own sin, on familial sin, on societal sin. We don't cry out. We are not broken. We are in many cases still listening to the prophets who are prophesying for us instead of for God. We have been desensitized to our sin. And like the women of Jerusalem who said, our husbands know exactly what we're doing and so we have tacit approval of it. And so don't sit there and talk to me. And give an attitude to the prophet instead of recognizing a necessity broken by sin. This is the condition of the heart of the church today. Not just the world. The world has always been that condition. That's why it's a marvel when anyone comes to Christ is because that's the powerful working of the Holy Spirit convict them bring conviction in their life so that godly sorrow can bring forth repentance, that they can re- respond to his conviction by repenting and then God can regenerate. And yes, that is not a Calvinistic order of salvation. It is biblical. <laughs> you have to respond. And so they are reminded, look back, look back. And I know we're couple thousand years away from this plus, um, but please look back and realize that what God did there, he will do again and has done again and he, and he will do worse. It will go on a global scale. You do not need to endure it. And like many of the Israelites, there are going to be people who are going to sneak through the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath and enter into the millennial kingdom and think, you got that, but they're not going to be followers of Jesus Christ. And yes, they will enjoy pretty good conditions for a thousand years, but then as soon as Satan is loose, they're going to rebel because it never penetrated and broke their heart. Today is a day of salvation. This is the time that we, the church, needs to be responsive and recognize that we can be found in danger of this kind of judgment, of bringing upon ourselves the wrath, yes, I said the wrath of God. I know salvation is to save us from wrath. 
And yes, I know what that entails. It means that I am bringing into doubt, into question, our salvation. It is necessary when there is nothing but sin as the evidence of our walk with God and rebellion and stiff-neckedness. Yes, we should question that. Am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I the real deal? And so, yeah, you should be studying 1 John. Figure it out. You're doing it in Sunday school in the adult class. Ask yourself the question, how do I know? Am I? Am I? Am I? Am I? As you read through that book, you have to ask yourself, am I? Am I keeping his commandments? Are they not grievous? Am I loving the brethren? Am I loving God? Am I? Am I confessing my sin? Am I? Am I all, any of these things? Because that's how you know that you're a child of God. That's how you know you have eternal life. And if you can't answer those yes, what is the conclusion? Ooh, I don't know. I might think, I might hope, I might wish, I might pretend, but I don't know. And Israel in that condition, claiming to be the people of God, the city where God lives, was broken and destroyed because they thought they could serve two gods at once. And so chapter 3 opens up with a what does real repentance, godly sorrow that brings repentance look like? And I believe this is what it looks like. Is a man who has witnessed the wrath of God, has recognized it, understood what it entails, and says, I want nothing to do with this ever again in all my days. God has broken me. This is not necessarily the only outcome that is possible. It's going to be evident when we get back to Jeremiah that some of these people are only broken. <laughs> now, I don't even want to use the broken. They're, they're a little cracked. Their heart cracked for a little bit and then it healed right back up and went right back to stone. But for this one, speaking here, he says, I have, God has broken me down. There is nothing left. I recognize that in my sin, God is my enemy. And when we begin to recognize that as long as we walk in sin, God is my enemy. I am his enemy. And he will work against me and never, ever for me. And that should bring us to weeping. That there would be anything in our lives that would make God my enemy. And oh, get it out, get it out, get it away from me. I do not want God to be my enemy. And then sit here on Sunday and be like, oh Lord, bless me. And, and well, you're my enemy me for six days out of the week. And you're not broken over that? And here the prophet pours it out and says, this is what brokenness looks like. This is what it sounds like. This is what it feels like. It feels like God has smashed your face down and broken your teeth in the gravel of the asphalt. They didn't have asphalt back then, but gravel's pretty close. Spiritually, that's what it should feel like. 
when you're genuinely broken over sin, that you can't tolerate it, that you recognize this is just destroying me. It is destroying my relationships with everyone, but particularly with God, that he would treat me like an enemy. But he has to. Doesn't want to. Desperately does not want to have you to be his enemy. Wants to be your father. Wants to be your savior. Wants to be the one who blesses your life. But has to because we cherish sin. We coddle it. We hold it so close to us. We who claim to be like Christ embrace the things that are unchrist-like and think we have an argument before God. And this man, this man in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through 17, 18, this is what brokenness looks like, sounds like, feels like. I recognize God's against me because I've been in sin. I made him my enemy. I am the target for his archery practice. And I put myself in that position. I've got a great big target saying, God, just try to hit me here. And God's a pretty good aim. When he draws the bow, you better watch out. It's coming. But you see, in the Christian community, we have largely divorced ourselves from the idea of God's judge because we've been, for now, my whole life, really hearing God's love. And I've said this plenty of times in this pulpit, and you're probably getting tired of hearing it. Um, I hope you're not getting tired of hearing it. It is your only salvation. You must recognize that you have desperate need before you can ever have deliverance. If you do not recognize your sin condition, if you don't know that God is your enemy or don't want to believe it, you will never seek to restore a relationship with him. So don't get tired of hearing it. You must Be confronted with sin. Acknowledge it. Grasp the fact that you, and sometimes maybe a whole church, can be in opposition to the very workings of God. I don't care what the size is. There are little churches that are just as stubbornly ornery against God as big ones. This man was broken. And he accepted that the bitterness was of his own. In the midst of all of this, we also have another scene behind the scene. We have another, some more imagery here that's really important. In in this description of this broken man is also the description of the perfect man that became broken for you. 
that took your physical break. And when it talks about the gall and the darkness and the affliction, we hopefully can see in this imagery our Savior on Calvary's cross. That he took on my brokenness even when I wasn't broken. So that he could become my sin. So the description of this man in his broken state realizing, oh man, I am in deep trouble. I am the enemy of God. And he has every right to pour it out on me. Is now shared by someone who wasn't God's enemy, who didn't deserve it, who endured it. And yes, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced it spiritually and physically, all of this. He experienced what we should be broken over for us. And we find these companions, these are not either or in this passage. This is not one or the other. This is both. This is how we ought to be, and this is what Jesus was. We ought to recognize that he took the punishment for my sin. He drank it. He experienced it. He felt it. What I should have been feeling. They ridiculed him. Do you see it here? As we go through this description of what this man feels and how he portrays himself, we find it shared by one who had nothing deserving of that. For me. I recognize I deserve this. If I've been in sin, I, I make God my enemy. And I need to, this is how he, the treatment happens, but that treatment was displaced unto my Savior. How can I do more of it? Oh, Paul's right. His grace is greater than my sin, but does that mean I have permission to sin more? God forbid. God forbid that those of us who claim this go back to that sin and wallow in it. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, and James for that matter, when he says, how can you go back? How dare you go back? Having tasted of the heavenly gift to go back into that, how can you think that there's any place for you to be restored in the kingdom of God? There's no more sacrifices made for you. How can you go back? And the answer for an overwhelming majority of those of Judah was you can't. And they perished. We're still not done with people dying over all this. And now these few survivors, the question is, how can we comfort you? What consolation can we offer you? And in the middle here, we have, okay, if you get broken, if you recognize the judgment of God and what you deserve it and recognize that someone else paid that judgment for you 
in the backdrop there is that one who suffered everything this man describes. Now you see the turn. And we go from one verse, verse 18, it says, My strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. There it is, my hope has perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall in my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Wow, how do you do that? Zoom! Zoom, you just went from my hope has perished to wham, I have hope! What happened? He contemplated in his mind the circumstances and who God is and what God has done for him and the recognizing that my sin has brought me here and yet my God is full of mercy and grace. And so when I, just when I think that I have no hope, there comes God's provision and I have all hope. This is what God calls us to. But we all want to jump into Verses 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. And we're like, yeah, those are great verses. I like those. And we'll sing, great is thy faithfulness, Lord God, unto me. And we forget that it was in the book of Lamentations. They were supposed to be weeping as we sing that. Because we are faithless. Because we are unfaithful. Because we have been keep going back to that sin and that sin and that sin, even while we declare ourselves his child. And John says, how can that be? How can you hate the brethren and love God who died for them and calls them his own? How can that be? How can we console you The only consolation is in Jesus Christ. And it will only come when we are broken enough to recognize that we have no hope without him. And once we have him, we have hope. But it calls us to more than just a verbal agreement that Jesus is God and Because the Bible says not only you must confess it with your mouth, but you must believe it in your heart. And godly sorrow that brings repentance precedes that. It must. And if that has never happened, then we are in dire straits. We are in trouble. We are in the condition of Jerusalem the day before. Oh, that we'd be in the condition of these being carried away the day after. Broken. And recognizing that we are recipients of what we have earned, what we deserve. And so you're still here. What time is it? Yeah, you're still here. And you still have a chance. Because the Lord's mercy and only his mercy has kept you from experiencing death and destruction already. Verse 22 says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. That same God that purposed 
to destroy you because you refused to repent and did it without pity, without pity, without pity. Did you pick that up as we were reading? Without pity. Now is full of mercy. Well, what is the transition? The transition is twofold. You are brokenhearted and Jesus is broken for you. You are ready to receive the gift that God has provided. That's the difference. That goes from being a condition where God has no pity on you to the condition where God has nothing but mercy for you. Wrapped up here in the middle is, is this precious truth. And so now we get to this. Now God's mercy is there. His compassions don't fail. And new every morning, great, is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore I hope in him, says my soul. The declaration of great is thy faithfulness is on this side of a broken and contrite spirit. This side of understanding that Christ was broken for me. It's on this side that we recognize his faithfulness to allow me not to be destroyed without pity, which I deserved. I've earned that. That's my right. But instead, to be able to be called a child of God and to be an heir of the kingdom of heaven and to have the goodness of God poured out to me. Unless you think that is simply accomplished by praying a sinner's prayer, we're still not done. I wanted to make sure to include the next few verses so you understood that Praying the sinner's prayer is not equivalent to what this prophet is talking about, of receiving the mercies of God in Christ Jesus and being in this condition of delivered by the faithfulness of God, by his mercies, by his compassions. Verse 25 describes what it means to make the declaration, the Lord is my portion, I hope in him. That is his statement of faith. But it is more than a statement. It is redefining him. The Lord is my portion. I hope in him. What does that mean to have the Lord your portion? Look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There's a lot of people that need to hear that. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it, laid it on him. Let him put his own mouth. I added a word there, I know. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. He is not striking you without an objective. To have God as your portion is wrapped up in all that he describes here that now I'm going to be waiting on him. 
That doesn't mean that I have to sit back and tap my toe. I'm waiting for you, Lord. That's not what he's talking about. This phrase is that whole idea that I am his servant. That's why we call them waiters. They're there to serve you your food. I will wait on the Lord. I am his servant. I will do his bidding at his biting. As soon as he says go, I run. And I'll say, what do you want me to do while I'm going? Without delay, without complaint? Yes, sir. Let's go. I am waiting on the Lord. I'm going to seek him. And yes, Jesus Christ echoes this. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I think that kind of puts it in your doorstep, doesn't it? He's ready to be found. He wants, according to verse 33, he doesn't want to grieve you. He doesn't want to afflict you. He wants the opposite. You've got to seek him. And the idea that somehow you can be called a Christian and not seek after the Lord, that God's word's boring and spiritual things are ho-hum, how can it be? Oh, that we would hope in him. That does not mean wishful thinking. That hope means a confidence that we find all of our confidence in Christ. That we wait quietly for our salvation to be accomplished fully. We begin that. Our salvation is a, is a process. It is not a single event. Yes, we, we talk about its initiation at our declaration, which he has. His declaration, the Lord is my portion. In him I will hope. That's the declaration and that initiates the process of salvation that we understand involves justification right away. It involves sanctification. Happens as I become more holy. Sanctification happens over time. And then finally it, it is concluded with glorification. We become like him. For we will see him as he is. That's salvation. That whole process and most of us get stuck way over here and think that's enough. And, the, and here, the lamenter is making it very clear, oh no, I understand it's much more than that. I need to make my declaration, and then I'm going to back it up with all these things. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to seek him out. I'm going to persevere in my faith, and I'm going to wait quietly on the Lord. And I have my confidence in that, that he who begun a good work in me is faithful and will complete it. As I respond to him, he'll be faithful to me. And as he's faithful to me, I'm called to respond to him and not look over my shoulder at the gods of Egypt and think I want them. And then, also, a new principle. It's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Later on, when God lays it on you, sometimes it's God doing that. He tests, doesn't he? He tests you. Sometimes he tests in really different ways, and it's amazing. You do a good study of test God testing people. Um, you know, Hezekiah, you know how God tested him? I'm just going to leave you alone for a little while, see what you do on your own. That was a test of God on Hezekiah. Hezekiah failed. He acted foolishly. 
And sometimes he brings people in. I think the Gibeonites are a good test of Joshua and his clan. What are you going to do when you, you know, are you going to seek me? No, you're going to trust your own hands and eyes and ears and not ask me. Got the woman and the thumb in there. You could just ask me. I'd tell you, but you didn't. See, God tests in a lot of different ways. But when God lays it on you, what does the psalmist say? Is that bad? No, it says it's good. Bear the yoke in his youth. As an early believer, and I got to tell you this, this is, I, I, I'm making a spiritual application so I understand that. Um, I think it is incredibly beneficial that people, as soon as they get saved, have to pay to be a Christian. I don't mean money. I mean it hurts. In either broken relationships, loss of a job, have to run and hide. And yeah, that happens in some countries. The most devastating thing about Western Christianity is you can make a profession of faith on Sunday and live just the same from that Sunday on and it will have no impact on your life. It won't cost you a thing. That's a fact. And that is a horrible fact. Because your faith has never been tested. You've never had to decide, God or mother? God or father? God or brother? God or job? And you're never tested. And I want to tell you, it is beneficial. Perhaps one of the most beneficial things that can happen to a brand new Christian is that they are put through the crucible right away where it is, who is your God? Is it God or is it your family? Is it God or is it your job? Is it God or is it your fill in the blank? It is good for one to bear his yoke in his youth. And that's why I think it's good that when the seed sprouts, comes up out of the ground and the sower of the soils, that the sun rises fast, hot, and we'll find out if it's got any roots. Is that real? Do it early. Get it over with. Let's find out. Instead of letting them go on and on and on and on, pretending that they are what they aren't. It is better to be tested in your faith early than later. It really is. Why? Because you know now, it's cost me. My hope is in the Lord. Frankly, my faith wasn't tested in my life until I was, had been a pastor for many, many years before it was genuinely tested, what's it going to be? And I had struggles. My family can attest to it. Oh, I would have preferred that much earlier in life. Sit alone, keep silent, because God's laid it on him. Let him put, now, back before it says that God broke your teeth with gravel, Here it says, put your own mouth in the dust. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he might lift you up. You don't want the reverse. The reverse is what happened. They exalted themselves and God broke them, destroyed them. It is much 
preferred that you humble yourself. This is part of the Christian life. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and God will lift you up. We all want God to exalt us, but we don't want to do the requisite. Humble yourself. It goes on. Verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him. We don't like that at all. (laughs) Let people reproach you. Let people slap you around a little bit if necessary, whether it be of their enemy doing it. Bible says, well, if you suffer for doing wrong, you just got what you deserve. But if you suffer for doing good, you are blessed. We don't have that attitude. Boy, if God doesn't make everything go my way, we're, what's the deal? When you are struck, it says here, how you respond, you give it your cheek. You just take it. That's how the attitude of a disciple is. Let my master strike me to correct me. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. And let, my, let the enemies reproach me. And that's what happened to the disciples.